Hey everybody, Joe here from the Lions Led by Donkeys podcast. If you enjoy what we do here on the show and you think it's worth your hard-earned money, you can support the show via Patreon. Just a $1 donation gets you access to bonus episodes, our Discord, and regular episodes before everybody else. If you donate at an elevated level, you get even more bonus content. A digital copy of my book, The Hooligans of Kandahar, and a sticker from our Teespring store. Our show will always be ad-free and is totally supporter-driven. We use that money to pay our bills, buy research materials that make this show possible, and support charities like the Curtis Red Crescent, the Flint Water Fund, and the Halo Trust. Consider joining the Legion of the Old Crow today. And now back to the show. Hello, and welcome to yet another lovely episode of the Lions Led by Donkeys podcast. I'm Joe, and with me is Liam. Hi, Liam. Being censored, I might add. Uh, I am a muzzled bulldog. You have to be. You're you're a wild animal. <laughs> yeah, that's fine. Let's just let's just move on. I'm not going to say any names or no. call call people something unpublishable. Means you have to cut all this out. <laughs> this isn't going to make any sense. <laughs> uh, that's fine. I don't pay him. You pay him. <sighs> anyway, I'm Joe, and with me today is Liam. Hi, Liam. Hi, hi Joe. It's <laughs> the second time we're trying an intro. Because Liam is mad. Pretty much always, Joe. Now, Liam, this uh, the year of uh, of 2020, uh, 2022. My brain is fucking broken. Do you? Are you okay? No, I'm not. Yeah. <laughs> the okay. 2022 thus far for Lions of by Donkeys podcast has probably been just one continuous series after another. Getting kicked to the metaphorical nuts, as it were. Yeah, I mean, you were certainly in for the worst of it. Cycled you out, brought you back in, put you down into developmental to let your mental health recover. <laughs> Yeah, I wanted to triple A ball for a while. Triple A podcasting. I put you down to the AHL of podcasting so you'd stop crying in the locker room. <laughs> you got to do what you got to do, coach. You know, I it's a tough move, but I, I respect it. But I brought you back. In case anybody's wondering, this is a bit. Liam has always been here. <laughs> um, Hello. <laughs> and uh, the reason why is because we're doing the longest series that you've ever done. Currently, I think the longest series we've ever done sits at seven episodes. This will not break that. Is that a Soviet-Afghan war? Uh, I believe so. Yeah, that one's going to be hard to top uh, for various reasons. My, uh, my own bad research uh, and presentation. I was still learning. I think I have it down now. I have been doing this for four years, so I'm a little bit better uh, at writing and presentation and abridging myself a little bit better. Cannot relate. Yeah. I mean, that's mostly a lie because we're about to start a five-week-long series. So the series has been requested since I think we started the show. And for a long time, I felt like it was one of those wars that just fell into a category that I'm not going to touch. It's too hard. It's too chaotic. It's it's too complicated. Like I've had people ask, when are you going to do a series on the US war in Afghanistan? Never. It's not going to happen. Just like the Lebanese Civil War. I'm never going to touch it. <laughs> I mean, I guess on a timeline long enough when we run out of stuff, I don't know. We'll, we'll talk. Uh, no, we won't. Because that would just be me reading the audiobook of uh, Hooligans. There's going to be bits and pieces, of course, that we cover. Like we touched on the Lebanese Civil War and we talked about Monty Malconian. We've touched on the war in Afghanistan multiple times. I just can't see a way where you can make a cognitive narrative of any kind about this or like the Syrian Civil War. <laughs> things are bad on a yeah. loop for four and a half hours. But one of those things for a long time I added to that list was the War of the Triple Alliance. Now, I think it is because for a long time, I was simply unable to do that episode or that series. Right. I am finally comfortable attempting this. <laughs> um, now, the War of the Triple Alliance, probably the most requested topic that we've ever gotten, uh, was a war that lasted between the years 1864 and 1870 and saw the tiny nation of Paraguay pick a fight against Brazil, Uruguay, and Argentina all at once, ending with them killing a full 70% of their own population through war, mismanagement, famine, and disease, all while imploding their economy and entire state for generations to come. Ask me about my night out at the bar last week. Shoot. That was it. That was the, that was a joke. That was the joke? 
I was, God damn it. (laughs) (laughs) I still don't have a boo button yet. Thank you. Thank you. Now, I have been warned ahead of time. This topic is going to piss some people off. Um, Now, I promise everyone listening, my intention is not to piss you off, whether that be through mispronunciations of Spanish. I do not speak Spanish, nor does Liam. No. Or, uh, you know, unless that some of that anger is coming from what I believe it is, and that is incredibly weird nationalism, in which case I'm dooming to piss you off because I don't like you Um, (laughs) straight up. (laughs) I concur. For uh, the modern nation of Paraguay, they they tend to lionize a lot of the dumbest people involved in this series. Oh, it's a bad move. And I make no apologies for anything I'm about to say about those people. Now, uh, the main sources I use for this series are Chris Lucher's book, To the Bitter End, Paraguay and the War of the Triple Alliance, and what is largely considered one of the first major research projects into the war in English is Charles Kolinsky's Independence or Death, the Story of the Paraguayan War, which I got via the University of Florida. However, as always, you can see our full sources in the show notes. Let me repeat that. You can see our full <laughs> sources in the show notes, just in, just in case. I do have to point out that, hence one of the titles of the book, this this war is known as the War of the Triple Alliance or the Paraguayan War. I am using the War of the Triple Alliance. It's the most common. It's largely interchangeable. It's the same thing. Now, with that, let's begin. And then, of course, to understand the roots of this conflict, we have to go back to colonialism. Yay! Yay! Now, the area we know today as Paraguay was discovered, if you can call showing up some place where people already lived, discovered by a Spaniard named Sebastian Cabot. Though his stay in the area was so brief, he pretty much only learned what the indigenous people called the place, which was the river that flows to the sea, or in their language, Paraguay. I don't know if that's like a creation mythos of the state or not. That's what I found. <laughs> I don't, don't know. Get mad at us. Don't get, stop getting yeah. mad at us. Immediately after figuring that out, Cabot ran for his life uh, because the native people of the area began killing his team because they're Spaniards. That's what you do to them when they show up. (laughs) All in all, a good call. However, in the 19th century, they couldn't kill enough explorers to stop the unfortunate tide of colonial history. But uh, in order to get there, the Spanish, who would rule over the area, seemingly divided the area up at random and at will, as they generally did and do. In 1530, it was a part of a massive province known as the Provincia Gigante de los Indos, which... Is uh, that a large province of the Indies? Pretty much, yeah. (laughs) Spanish is fun. Which included the borders uh, or parts of the borders of Paraguay, Uruguay, eastern Bolivia, and most of Argentina. So, as you can tell, things are already getting quite blurry when we jump into the modern age. Twelve years after that, it became part of the vice royalty of Peru and split into two different governorships, that of the River Plate, headquartered in Buenos Aires, and then of Guaria, based out of Asuncion. Now, herein lies the seeds of a lot of future problems, as colonialism tends to do. Now, the government base in Asuncion had no seaport. That made it completely dependent on the government in Buenos Aires. Buenos Aires very obviously learned this quite quickly that they had Asuncion by the balls and right. levied huge taxes and goods being shipped towards Asuncion. Then in 1776, yes, things happen in the world outside of the United States during this year. Other than, <laughs> other than America number one, USA, USA. The Spaniards fucked around again, and those two governorships were smashed together to form the Vice Royalty of the Plate, or the Vice Royalty de la Plata. Welcome to the Union of Disappointment, boys. (laughs) (laughs) Once again, even with one government, it was centered on Buenos Aires. This caused some very serious rifts as the Argentines were... Now, the term Argentine and Argentina didn't quite exist yet, Um I'm going to use that for the sake of my own ease, quite honestly. Uh, Even during this war, Argentina wouldn't be called Argentina yet. Uh, So just bear with me. Uh, but the Argentines were already much better off than their Paraguayan neighbors monetarily, you know, because of the port. And they sure. also held all of the political power as well, because as you imagine, it's attached to monetary power. That's not a new thing. It's always been a thing. 
Now, this became an, an independent struggle, which the Argentine side attempted to snuff out of the Paraguayan side. After all, they had a sweet gig being the colonial administrators for the Spanish. Why would they let that slip away and let someone else have power? That's just bad for business. Yes, of course. Famously. Yeah. Speaking of that colonial administration, as you can imagine, it was technically in control of the Spanish crown, but uh, you know the Spanish had quite the empire. They couldn't govern everything themselves, and n- neither could they plop a Spanish guy and Spanish institutions down to control them. Are we going to get one of those bizarro world corporations that does all sorts of horrific stuff? Not quite. Uh, Instead, they uh, empower locals to do horrible things on their behalf. Obviously, this is not uh, a Spanish-only thing. The French and the Belgians were famous for doing this as well. Um, You give one part of society a lot of benefits for upholding the colonial norms to oppress the rest of them. That, in turn, creates a feedback loop where the now-privileged locals don't want to give that up for any kind of equality, uh, whether that be independence or otherwise, because that ends up fucking them over. Right. It's not good. Now, they left a lot of the control of the River Plate to local River Plate authorities. Now, this is within the Spanish colonial administration. This was equal parts to their belief that they understood the area better, which they did. And uh, because, fuck it, keep paying us taxes and we truly don't care what you do. Right. Now, this meant the administration in Buenos Aires, it was in their best interest to keep things going the way it's always been going. They could pay the Spanish uh, and continue reaping the benefits of being their administrators. Sure. The Spanish paid such little attention to the shit that even bother marking borders between their own colonial states. Again, add that to the list of problems this is going to cause in the future. Oh, no. But the local authorities of the vice royalty were based out of Buenos Aires, meaning that they had just no mechanism, the Spanish or the Paraguayans, well, the Spanish if they cared, but certainly the Paraguayans, from simply dominating the Paraguayans. Everything would be in charge of the Argentines. Which is exactly what happened. And there wasn't exactly a grieving process in a, in a colonial empire. You couldn't file a complaint to HR. <laughs> just, just running a list of grievances and getting your dick down to the floor. Oh, that sucks. Please forward your complaint to the government in Buenos Aires. Okay, but my complaint is about the government in Buenos Aires. Good luck. Oh, God. Yep. Yeah. Now, this eventually... As it always does, festered and grew into hatred and resentment uh, over time. Then Spain got invaded by France in 1808 as Napoleon, <laughs> man famous right. for never doing anything wrong, That's stormed, right. <laughs> stormed through Europe, eventually placing his idiot brother Joseph on the Spanish throne. Now, this caused a split among Spain's American colonies. Some of them wanted to accept their new king. Y'all can have Florida back. <laughs> While others accepted the the previous Spanish bourbon king. This created a schism amongst inbred assholes beefing over a throne a thousand miles away. Still others, growing rich uh, in Buenos Aires as like an upper class of merchants, like, why are we doing business with the Spanish at all? While they're busy shooting at each other, we should go for independence. Now, the Argentines in Buenos Aires didn't exactly just want Argentinian independence. They wanted independence within the boundaries of the voice royalty that they were in charge of. This included Paraguay. So just self-government ship like devolvement or? No, no, it's straight independence. Oh, okay. Okay. Now, there was some people who advocated for that kind of setup, uh, but uh, Spain was falling apart at the seams. So it was a good time to exit. They saw their independent national boundaries as the entire vice royalty of the plate. This entire colony is now whatever we're going to call it. This meant they wanted to take Paraguay with them. Paraguayans looking at this entire situation and seeing that, wow, now we're not going to only be fucked by the Argentines and the Spanish. We'll just be fucked by the Argentines. Refuse to play along with this game. An assembly was called and they decided they were going to break off from the vice royalty and go work on themselves for a little while. Respect it. This led Buenos Aires to dispatch General Manuel Belgrano to kick the Paraguayans into line. And by that, I mean, become subservient to Buenos Aires again. Sure. This became known as the Paraguayan Campaign, or and also the Argentine War of Independence, while also simultaneously being the Paraguay War of Independence. If you're like me and you only learned your South American history from Top Gear, uh, you may remember the Belgrano as the ship uh, that sank and launched the Falklands War. I was about to say that this would not be the only Belgrano that gets its teeth kicked in. (laughs) 
I don't have a dog in this fight. Nope, nope, nope. I'm not. I'm not weighing. I'm not weighing in on the Falklands today. On the Falklands, fuck. Who cares? It's like honestly, it's like one of the few pieces of colonialism that hardly matters. There was no indigenous population there that was displaced. It's just people fighting over rocks and prestige. It doesn't actually fucking matter. In that case, the uh, <laughs> the Falklands are British and always will be. And that's the only time I'll ever say that. <laughs> Uh, wait, I have a centrist position. Her Majesty's Ila uh, uh, de, uh, de Melvinus. <laughs> you you got to share it like the Canadians and the Danes do with that one island off of Greenland. Yeah, occasionally you just show up with a flag, plot it at like Stanleyville or whatever the fuck that the one city is called, and then just trade. Take the <laughs> other guy's flag off. Yeah, so on and so forth. There you go. That's what we got to do. This podcast is now banned in Argentina. <laughs> oh whatever we had a good run belgrano expected to steamroll the paraguayans while the paraguayans decided to be much more pragmatic in their independence goals for instance the spaniards suddenly became their friends uh because not exactly wanting to lose to argentina and thus weaken their grip along all of their colonies the spanish were like hey paraguay need some help kicking those guys out and they're like all right, I, I I don't know if we should trust you. Like, no, we're we're good for it, bro. Trust me. This is just just a kick source, out the source. Trust me. <laughs> trust me, bro. So they did. An important part here is the Paraguayans had not yet declared independence. Rather, only their freedom from the vice royalty of the River Plate, meaning freedom from the Argentines and their own independence struggle. Therefore, Spain was like. Yeah, I, this is almost like a universal theory of fuck that guy, but I really don't want to hand it to the Spanish because they had bad intentions. <laughs> right. Now, the Paraguayans pledged loyalty to the Spanish crown, at least for now. That was a very pragmatic rule. Nobody really believed in it. I'm just here so I won't get shot. And most of the same people that were like, yeah, go Spain, were also working for uh, like the, a patriot movement was forming behind closed doors. Like they realized that if we're going to be smart, we need to have Spain on our side to kick these guys out of our yard. Otherwise, right. we're going to get fucking rolled. And, you know, on the flip side, maybe Spain loses too many people in this war to continue oppressing us. This could work out in our way, you know? Sure. Now, the Paraguayan campaign ended in a complete and total defeat for the forces of Belgrano. winning. That's oh, crazy how that works. Yeah. He, he was not hit with an exocet this time, though. <laughs> 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 yeah, yeah, not a big fan of the British, obviously, uh, being sarcastic when I say they will, they're British and always will be. But uh, I don't know. Do you have a rule Britannia drop? I don't. And I don't know if I ever will. I assume I'm going to get yelled at in the comments. That's okay. Some of these things are jokes. Of course, of course, we're joking. I just think that like imperial prestige projects are the dumbest fucking thing on earth. That entire war was oh, one of choice. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Nobody gives a shit. It was a nationalist dog whistle from two failing shitty right wing governments. Nobody Absolutely. cares. What he said. Don't get mad at me in the comments, please. Yeah. I mean, if you're the kind of person that gets mad of those islands, I don't know what to tell you. Uh, <laughs> there's a Japanese version of you getting really mad over the Senkakus, which, much like those, are barren rocks with no life on them. <laughs> I include Stanleyville as barren rocks with no life on it. <laughs> like I said, Belgrano was soundly defeated. Uh, and meanwhile, in Asuncion, the royal governor, the man appointed to rule the area for Spain, kind of like a governor general, sure. um, was forced to step aside because the military government... Kind of ruled by uh, patriots, if you want to call them that. They didn't. They were. They were not down with the. With they were not down with the crown. <laughs> I didn't. I didn't write that down. I just thought mm -hmm. of that. Wow, that was that was three rhymes in one, dude. Yes, it is an ICP reference because, uh, oh. ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> oh my god, dude! <laughs> well, I'm getting a lot of mileage out of that one. Now, Jesus fuck. Now, uh, this led to a military government headed by a guy oh, named fuck Captain. You, I quit, dude. <laughs> a military government led by Captain Falencio Yigros and a lawyer named Jose Gaspar Rodriguez. Oh, you never want to be led by a lawyer. You never want to be led by a lawyer, especially one with more than two names. <laughs> yeah. Thankfully for me, he is commonly known as Dr. Francia. Oh, easy enough. <laughs> yeah. And he was called that because he was one of two Paraguayans in the entire country to hold the PhD. Also, he was really weird, and I'm kind of in love with him. 
Yeah, most dudes that hold PhDs are uh, are strange people. I yeah, in my experience, everyone that I've met with a PhD has weird tics that they develop over the years of like just forfeiting large sections of their social life for studies. You leave my mother alone. I am including like my professors in this, <laughs> unless I'm they're sorry, listening. Was- in which case, you're you're perfect. Um, nothing so handsome. Yeah. What a jawline. Now, previous to this, Dr. Francie had retired out to the countryside where he'd tell anybody who would listen to him that the government was completely incompetent, which was true, and they were coming to kill him, which may or may not have been true. <laughs> local native tribes, because he lived out in the rural areas, which was mostly uh, native, and the local native tribes believed he had a kind of mystical powers because they heard him out at night talking to what they called, quote, night demons. Oh, boy. This is because he had a neat habit of getting blind drunk and yelling out into the night skies, literally cursing the stars. <laughs> uh, you know, PhDs are some strange folks. Uh, like I said, I kind of like this guy. I can respect the man who, in the solemn loneliness of his own home, gets blind drunk and screams at the air. I can respect that. Mm-hmm. Now... Obviously, by then, he'd been rehabilitated. He's working with the captain. And these two mid-led Paraguay to decide to become a republic in 1813, ruled by co-councils. Now, as anybody who's paid attention to any other situation where there's been more than one person calling themselves councils, you already know how this ends. Um, now, Congress named Francia and Falencio Yigros as alternative consuls for a year. Alternative councils was like sixth man of the year. Yeah. Yeah, congratulations, dude. You're on the B team. Francia was given the first four months. His term was followed by a four-month term for Egros, which was then followed by a second four-month term for Francia. Each council controlled half of the army in a system that was developed to absolutely never fucking work. <laughs> I don't know how good that is. I got to be honest with you. This is the South American version of like the Lebanese government. Like, this is never going to work. Right. Within a year, Dr. Francia has made the sole council of Paraguay, a decision not everybody would live to regret. Francia hated the Spanish and their aristocracy that they had left behind. So in 1820, whether it was real or otherwise, nobody is entirely sure, a plot to overthrow him was found. And it was decided that the aristocracy was the root of all of these problems in this plot, and they had to be just wiped out. Most of them went via firing squad, including Captain Egros for good measure, despite the fact he was not a member of the aristocracy. (laughs) Oh, well, you know. <laughs> then for reasons nobody's entirely sure or been able to quite figure out, he did the same thing for a vast majority of the Creole population. Why? Despite the fact that he himself was partially Creole. Uh, he just said that they were disloyal. Well, Joe, did you know that Hitler was Jewish? Through pure insanity and bloodlust, nobody would ever go on to question Dr. Francia's rule ever again. At least from inside the country. However, that didn't mean he wasn't paranoid as hell through all times through the rest of his life. He slept with a gun under his pillow. Nobody was allowed six paces of him, and even canes were banned from being used anywhere nearby him. If someone needed a cane to actually walk, they'd be forced to sit on the ground and address him like crisscross applesauce. (laughs) Poor dad, dude. Every bush and tree along his route from his home to his work office were uprooted to make sure nobody could ambush him, which just seems like good sense. I'm actually going to do this on my way to the corner store just to be safe. Understandable. This, however, brought with it questions about threats from outside the country. With the threat of Argentina on one side, the newly independent Brazil, then the Brazilian Empire. Yeah, that was a thing. I can't believe Pedro II would ever do anything bad. We're going to learn a little bit more about Pedro II in a bit. But I always play him in Sim, <laughs> Congratulations on all the slavery, I guess. Oh, no. Well, I always also play as England or America. So, you know. Oh, that's I'm, a trifecta. Uh, listen, I'm not a moral person most days. Everybody knows the moral thing to do in Civ is to play as Gandhi and nuke everybody. Ugh. Francia decided the best way to protect Paraguay going forward was to effectively come South American North Korea and become Uh-oh. a hermit state. Nobody Juche. in there. Yeah, uh, Paraguayan Juche. Honestly, that's not too far from what he envisioned. Juchaguay. Minus the thin veil of communism over the top. Paraguay was sure. already a very remote and secluded place. So shutting it down was made 
virtually as easy as banning all river travel within its borders because that was its main route of travel in and out of the country. Boom, borders are closed. Uh, the, like the countryside is so rough, really the only people that make it through there are native tribes where the goings-on of the central governments are immaterial to their existence. Sure. So effectively, Paraguay has been shut. One port was kept open and closely monitored by a small army of spies. And as you can imagine, this was not great for a country. You can't be that isolationist and expect to not, I don't know, collapse inward on yourself, which is kind of what happened. Um, The economy collapsed and people were largely reduced to subsistence farming. Um, He also confiscated the Catholic Church's property because everyone eventually does one good thing. Uh, And he named himself, rather than the Pope, as the head of the Catholic Church in Paraguay. Ah, son of Acantus, baby! (laughs) (laughs) I don't know if that makes him technically an anti-Pope or not, but I still like it either way. Those people, listen, man, I'm not a big fan of the Roman Catholic Church, but those people are like super duper freaks. You? No, can't imagine. My girlfriend's Catholic, man. Listen. I have to go to some sort of confirmation next month and I'm just like, I don't even belong. Like, what? No. <laughs> I'm going to go, but I'm going to complain about it. My mom grew up Catholic and I was endlessly happy. She never tried to force the faith onto me. But as head of the Catholic Church slash president for life or council for life, whatever he's going by, he made primary school compulsory and then banned all other education. Uh, so, okay. Yeah. Take win some, lose some, I guess is how I would say that. So people were literate. Kind of, kind of. They do their ABCs. Yeah, I mean, they they let it. They read at a very low level. Um, the idea behind this was he saw intelligence as a threat to him personally. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, which he's not the first person to do this, nor no, the last. No, no. And uh, he saw anybody going to say college is like, why do you want to be? Why do you want to be as smart as me? You trying to come after my fucking position? <laughs> so he outlawed college. <laughs> I like that dictators never have any original ideas anymore. I will say this is very original for his time and ah. especially in the area. Uh, even in comparison to his neighbors, he was, uh, uh, you could safely call him eccentric. I was thinking some weird Khmer Rouge shit or some. Uh, mm, who, was the, who, was, who was the dictator of uh, Myanmar slash Burma? The uh, super weird general one that was ruled by his dreams or whatever. Oh, yeah. He had like a soothsayer. I don't yeah. know, but yeah, I know who you're talking about. Oh, Ronald Reagan. <laughs> Aha. Now, uh, he seemingly centralized the entire state, which is generally a good thing um, for the running of a government. I'm not going to say politically it's good. I will say for the running of a government, makes things easier. Sure. Uh, you know, creating ministries and making ministers for those to run affairs. He didn't do that part. He simply centralized it onto himself. He micromanaged and ran the entire state at every level. I repeat my point. Why bother? And weirdly enough, he was pretty good at it. Uh, Like he went down to like even so far as fixing the roads in the capital, uh, fixing drainage in the city's capital. uh, And despite the fact he was clearly not well uh, and uh, a dying alcoholic for half of his life. He dedicated his entire day from sunrise to sunset to work. Outside of that, he lived a Spartan existence. He ran it all on his own. Then he fucking died in 1840, leaving nobody in line to take over. That's tough. That's one of the problems when you run a country like this is when you die, nobody has any idea how to replace you. Now, as crazy and as paranoid as he was, he was not corrupt. He lived in like a single bedroom home. His only personal belongings were like a tobacco case and a pipe. And he left the state treasury with two times the amount of money in it than when he had gotten it. Oh, wow. Yeah. So like benevolent dictatorship moments. So who's to say if it's bad, who's to say if it's bad or not? Yeah, I'm, I'm not saying that he wasn't a psychopathic dictator. I'm just saying sometimes psychopathic dictators are okay on the books. Like if, yeah, if, if yeah. you're the, if you're the accountant, you're like, yeah, this guy's not so bad. Sure. He murdered half of my family, but at least tax time's okay. Uh, it reminds me of, uh, uh, Charles Taylor's election campaign in Liberia. He killed my ma, he killed my pa, but I shall vote for him or something. Yep. <laughs> Nailed it. <laughs> uh, which is, you know, 
Weird flex. Um, I look forward to 10 years where that's adopted by some third party in like Nebraska or whatever. <laughs> um, and, you know, he didn't draw his personal salary. He put it right into the treasury. Um, so he might be the the, the best cl- crazy dictator we've ever talked about. Oh, it's a low bar. It's a weird, flexible bar at that. Doesn't, doesn't have the style of General Butt Naked, though. He didn't have style. I'll give him that much. He was no Bocasa. Casa, that's it. You know, you know what? I was thinking of General Butt Naked. I'm not going back on it. Yeah, I mean, General Butt Naked certainly had style, too. It was just an affordable one because you didn't need clothes. <laughs> Gotta have swag, Joe. Everyone you you needed that. no clothes. You needed a clown wig and plenty of human flesh. And it turns out you, too, can rule a slice of Western Africa. He's a preacher now, weirdly enough. Uh, yeah. Isn't uh, Ray Lewis a preacher now, too? Uh, I know they have a lot in common. They both killed a guy. <laughs> allegedly killed a guy. Allegedly killed a guy. Ray Lewis is going to show up at my doorstep with a knife now. Alleg- allegedly killed a guy. No, he allegedly killed two guys, to be fair. That is true. Now, in his place, Congress, which did exist during all this, suddenly finding itself with power again, chose a guy named Carlos Antonio Lopez and, again, Mariano Alonso as co-counsels because they learned their fucking lesson last time. Apparently not. Though, as always, within a few months, Lopez exiled his co-worker, becoming the sole ruler because... Oh, what a dick. Yeah, <laughs> of course he fucking did. They were not, in fact, homies, as ICP would say. <laughs> oh, I love that that drop makes you so mad. <laughs> it makes me furious. It honestly God, makes me furious. <laughs> it's going to be your intro music. Like, if you're a professional wrestler, the lights are going to hit. Fucking pyro's gonna go off and you're gonna come into like fucking fucking magnets. How do they work? (laughs) I will not be doing that. No, I might be doing that. Who knows? Who knows what secrets lie within the hearts of man? Yeah. Now, the office of council was replaced with the office of president with 10 year term limits rather than a perpetual dictator under Francia. Though I'm sure you're aware the 10 year term limits were a perpetual dictatorship with extra steps. Yeah. Now, I assume they did this because they wanted some layer of legitimacy and also because they wanted a small window where maybe they don't have a crazy dictator that's having them pull up trees like go tree stumping in the backyard so someone doesn't assassinate him now lopez was described as a morbidly obese man who would never remove his top hat i don't know why that's important i just find it weird (laughs) just imagine him taking off his top hat and just the stink wafts out of it oh they call me all smell hat Now, he was a pissy, short-tempered asshole who lashed out at everyone. And unlike Francia, he was cartoonishly corrupt, almost like he had to make up for lost time. (laughs) He saw Paraguay as his personal property and treated it as such. He gave out random rights and privileges to his own family. Uh, For instance, his wife was given the first right to purchase all cattle coming into the capital of Asuncion. Why? Because fuck you, that's why. I don't know. Okay. His daughter bought new banknotes and sold them to the Central Bank of Paraguay. She make a profit at least? Oh, God, yeah. Good for her, man. His daughter was effectively the mint. Grind never stopped, Joe. His son was made a general and the minister of war, despite the fact he had no military training or experience whatsoever. His other son was made an admiral, despite the fact they had no navy. They are landlocked. They're landlocked, <laughs> yeah, okay. <laughs> they did have a riverine fleet. But uh, they didn't have a navy. What is that? Greenwater Navy or something? Uh, I think Brownwater Navy. Uh, but uh, it, it'll become important during the actual war. Like the, Everybody has riverine navies, and they're quite important. Sure. His brother became head of the church, and uh, all of the new increased taxes went directly to the president, personally, not the state. Oh, boy. Ooh, However... Boy. This influx of money did give him a very good reason to open up Paraguay to the world for trade. I mean, for him, mostly, and his family. He banned all internal travel within the country and made the chief administrator of each district a military officer. And then priests were ordered to turn over people's personal confessions to the state for prosecution. no. No, 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 that's bad. Unlike Francia, he did not try to run all of this himself, which honestly is for the best. He probably couldn't even run a dictatorship. He even created different ministries of government, which previously did not exist, though they, he staffed them all with like family members and shit. Uh, every, all, every minister of government pretty much became a feudal lord over his little domain. Sure. He attempted to modernize what he could and even outlawed slavery in 1842. Kind of. 
Beating us by 23 years. It was an outlaw of slavery, but everyone around them still had slaves. So like there was an agreement for most places that he would return runaway Mm. slaves. Cool. Great. He constructed one of the first railroads in South America that ran for 72 miles. He built a lengthy telegraph infrastructure. None of these things existed before. Uh, mostly because Francia, while knowing about them, kind of lacked the ability to do that himself. And since he wanted gotcha. to be a hermit kingdom, he couldn't exactly bring in people who knew how. Right. And unlike Francia, he attempted to build a modern military, bringing in experts and engineers from Europe and the United States. Before long, he had created somehow the most powerful and well-trained and professional military in South America. Especially the Navy. Who boy. Yeah. You don't want any of that smoke. However, all of their weapons were like 100 years old. <laughs> so, you know, professionalism can only get you so far. Getting wrecked by just some dudes with muskets on my Paraguayan riverboat. <laughs> now, this didn't stop Lopez from being, quite honestly, one of the most racist people in this entire story. Yeah, of course not. And not just against like people that were, say, white or European, whatever. Anybody who was in Paraguayan, he fucking hated. Well, it's just consistent. Yeah. I mean, but this wasn't something that he did for the masses. This is his own personal beliefs and uh, his, his personal ideology. And it, because of that, it became popular at the time because, you know, it's popular or else. Right. Now, his belief was to equate any foreigner with an enemy. And this extended to political meetings with fellow heads of state. This caused everyone to fucking hate Lopez. Consternation is the word I think I'm looking for. Yeah. Now, he died in 1862, leaving the office to his son, the main character of our story, Francisco Solano Lopez. Um, now, in case you're wondering, how does a president simply leave power to his son? He couldn't. There was no legal mechanism to do that. They were technically supposed to have elections and stuff. Um, it was effectively a coup, uh, and nobody argued too hard against it because the military was full of Lopez loyalists, and if Solano Lopez who I'll be calling simply Lopez from here on out, uh, would just be like, okay, we'll shoot the Congress. The military probably would have done it. So Congress is just like, okay, I guess he's president now. This is like a baby doc sort of situation. Yeah, kind of. They they made it legitimate within their laws in a roundabout way. Like all of his other previous work experience, this was a job given to him by his father, which he was unqualified for. He was a general previous to this and minister of war. And during that time, he was a military attache to Napoleon III, famously known for being the worst Napoleon. Yes. <laughs> it was during this time that he witnessed the Crimean War, but did not actively take part in it. Depending on what personal story of his that you read, he was some kind of war hero. And he was more of an observer from very far away. This is part to do with his own father's doing of fluffing up his son because he was minister of war, but also Lopez himself when he became president and, you know, did mm-hmm. everything we're about to talk about. He had to, you know, he had to church up his resume a bit as we, as we have all done from time to time. I have also added that I have fought in the Crimean War to a resume. Oh, me too, dude. Yeah. Now he met with Napoleon III after Napoleon had declared himself the emperor again. Right. And something about the pomp and the grandeur of it all, much like Bocasa, had an impact on him. He's like, I want people to treat me like this. Now, he never ended up declaring himself emperor, but he did want to become the Napoleon of South America. And he even put Uh it (laughs) secondhandedly, the emperor of the plate. Quite a few people have heard him talk about that. He never wrote that down or anything. Because the idea that he wanted to declare himself emperor of the plate is uh, contentious. Ah. Now, like his father, Lopez was short and very round. He had bow legs and was described as, quote, jowly. Uh, um, two things. <laughs> you never want to be described as jowly, I feel like. Also with chronic, disgustingly horrible breath. Uh, now, I have to couch that with horrible breath for the 1800s. So this oh, dude no. must have smelled fucking awful. That's what we call rank boys and girls. Yeah. Uh, Now, he was an abrasive asshole. Lopez was called, quote, fixated on purpose, bordering on stupidity. He saw people as little more than instruments of his rule and the state as him. Like, there was no difference between the Republic of Paraguay and Solano Lopez. They were one and the same. With him goes the country. This will be very, very bad later on. 
Yeah, I feel like it usually is. <laughs> yeah, it's never a good case. When something can't like can't say I, I'm shocked, I gotta tell you. I'm just gonna say, bold take here. Anybody who considers themselves like the father of a nation or the embodiment of a of a political body, it's never a sane man. That guy's probably an asshole. That, that guy's a fucking lunatic. He saw people, like I said, as a little more than instruments and tolerated absolutely zero disagreement at all from anyone. This included his Congress, which once again, pretty much uh, they had, I don't know. What, what, what's those teacher jobs where like you can't work around kids anymore. So they lock you in an office. So you can, can you making a paycheck? Yeah. He has one of those. Like the right. Congress has one of those <laughs> as a whole. Now, after the death of his father, he demanded the princely sum of $5 from every single person in Asuncion with the cause of it being to build a memorial to his glorious father. Nobody ever saw the money again, and no memorial was ever built. Yeah, <laughs> this is the first like GoFundMe rug pull I think I've ever read about. You guys, you guys are Tony twenty twelve. <laughs> Never jerk off in public is my advice. I'm sorry, what? What? Nothing. What's going on, Joe? <laughs> what is that? All right, you have my attention. Fucking what? <laughs> you remember the Tony twenty twelve guy? Oh God, God! I forgot yeah, that's what yeah, he did. Yeah, everybody jerked off in public, dude. Yeah, he was like running through the streets of like San Francisco or whatever, yeah, right? Jerking it. Yeah, yeah. Don't multitask, folks. No, no, can't recommend it. Now, within two years, anyone who opposes rule was gone, whether they be in some inland prison, which was generally a death sentence, or just straight up executed. He found himself the absolute and unquestioned ruler of Paraguay. Now, in Argentina, things were uh, a little bit more chaotic. For starters, even the name of the country, Argentina, wasn't a thing until 1862. However, I'm going to continue calling it that because it makes sense. Um, The independence they sought from Spain left them with no real demarcated borders and even a functioning, coherent central administration or government. That meant, as a working state, they kind of had to start from scratch. That's tough. Yeah. It's never a good sign. No. The country was generally split between the better off European influenced middle class uh, in like Buenos Aires and the suburbs that sprouted off from there. And uh, a whole lot of indigenous tribes who really wanted everyone else to leave them the fuck alone. Understandable. Yeah. And even then, the both of these groups are further split among smaller groups who want to rule themselves uh, with little to no input from a central government. There's a lot of confederation, stuff like that. Mm hmm. As you can tell, this is not a, an exhaustive history of Argentina. If this interests you, please read further on your own. Might I suggest checking our sources? Uh, so helpful. Perhaps. Um, now, this led to a foreseen kind of instability, right? Uh, you had one group of people who wanted a very strong central government and a whole lot of people who wanted, at best, a loose confederation. They left the fuck alone. Yeah. Yeah. Led to instability, coups, and wars. Uh, and the things became so wild that you really wish your government was as stable and normal as the one being ran by the guy next door who had just banned college. Yeah. Never a good side when you're rooting for that guy. When the guy who gets drunk and yells at the moon, like some kind of like possessed wolf man, is the best case scenario between the two, you have fucked up. That's the damn truth. Now, it was during this entire mess that the military government of Argentina, no, not that military government, the other one, the other attempted, one. <laughs> sorry, I have to differentiate here, uh, attempted to take over Paraguay and failed, you know, the Belgrano ex- expedition. Well, they also attempted to take over Uruguay at the same time and also failed, this time with the Uruguayans as well as with the assistance from the Portuguese coming down from Brazil to throw their hat in the ring. Oh, wow. Yeah. Never want to hear the Portuguese are coming. It's just going to be embarrassing. <laughs> then other parts of Argentina decided that mm, they don't really want this whole central government in Buenos Aires thing, leading them to be having the shit beat out of the government, uh, which was then ruled by Belgrano and Rivadavia, which then created officially a confederation system ruled by a dictator, Jean Manuel de Rosas, a man who would go on to become a brutal tyrant. Generally things that you don't consider with a confederation. As you can oh, tell, this boy. isn't going to work great. He solidified his power by slaughtering native tribes and bending the confederation of Argentina to its will, which you will note is the exact opposite of what a confederation is supposed to be. What a dick. Yeah. 
As you can imagine, this led to more problems and more than one war and the eventual overthrow by Jose de Arquaza, who was not a confederationist and more of a centralist, leading Buenos Aires itself to attempt to break away from the confederation, only to get kicked in the teeth until they rejoined once again, leading to a peace that lasted only about two years before the confederation collapsed once again into a pile of civil wars. My head hurts. Things are going great in Argentina. And and really, throughout all of this war, they don't get any better. Of course they fucking don't, dude. Wouldn't be lions led by donkeys if things never got better. <laughs> On the other side of all of this, in 1862, Bartolome Mitter uh, emerged victorious and organized the Argentine Republic, for and which he was elected president of. While he's attempting to unify the country in various shapes of success and to failure, a fair amount of it still really didn't want any part with his republic. It isn't even counting the fact that the government still claimed Uruguay and Paraguay and claimed everything that was part of the Viceroyalty. Nobody was even sure if this government would stick around, and meanwhile, various provinces are forming their own leagues, all with the goal of breaking off from the Republic and reconstituting a confederation (laughs) or possibly having their own independence. Anyway, Argentina, land of contrast, moving on. (laughs) I just made an entire country mad at me, and I apologize. Oh, my head hurts so bad. Now in Brazil. Fuck you, man. (laughs) It would be fair to call them the main independent player of this entire conflict. As you're well aware, Brazil is huge, and they were seen as a major threat by seemingly everyone else for the simple virtue, which, sure. And their size meant they could pretty much always have border disputes with several countries all at once. Because if you remember, none of these borders are marked down. Right. Like, and the states that... It's just some guys. Yeah. Whether it be a, a Portuguese successor state in, in the Empire of Brazil or Spanish ones, just constant border fuckery. Nobody's shit was stable at all. However, Brazil, or the Empire of Brazil, as it still was, really liked fucking around with local politics with its neighbors. Of course. Because it's the most powerful country in the area, economically at the very least, militarily, eh, debatable. Though they did invest in an actual, like, ironclad navy, it's hard to call them, like, a military powerhouse. They included uh, like things that they had claims on as the entire voice royalty as well. And when they realized that they weren't just going to like be able to walk in and take them over when Spain fucked off, they decided to start fucking with them internally. This included Argentina fought an entire war against Brazil on the side of Uruguay in 1852, and it would not be the only one. The birth of the Brazilian Empire itself was an act of political meddling that is incredibly weird. Brazil was a colony and later a client kingdom of Portugal ruled locally by Portuguese royalty that were related to the king of Portugal. The man who made the kingdom in 1808, I think it's Zhao? Zhao? Yeah, I think that's the name. Zhao the Sixth. Yeah, Zhao the Sixth, definitely, dude. That's, I definitely know what I'm talking about. <laughs> Eventually became king of Portugal. So, you know, he got a start in Brazil, got promoted to king of Portugal. So, like, they, it was kind of a file-through system. <laughs> the JV the League. Yes, I am simplifying things incredibly. Now, when that happened, the Portuguese government, now that Zhao was king and he had no reason to court relations with the Brazilians or the Portuguese in the Brazilian court, decided to strip Brazil of its elevated status of client kingdom, reverting it back to a colony. Now... Since the crown prince wasn't in charge anymore in Portugal, nobody actually cared about this, and it just made them easier to control. However, Brazilians or Portuguese in Brazil at the time, the Portuguese aristocracy, many of whom were partially Brazilian or Brazilian themselves, Mm -hmm. really did care about this. They enjoyed the privileges they were getting, and they liked this whole royal court thing they had going on. So they moved for independence. Yeah, I like Bridgerton, too. This led to Pedro I, Zhao's own son, who was, remember, king of Portugal at this time, to declare the empire of Brazil. Bold! Bold! Imagine what family dinner on Sunday is like. And then even weirder, Pedro I, who had just declared independence of an empire, therefore becoming emperor, would eventually go on to also be king of Portugal. Yeah, it's kind of confusing. <laughs> it's weird to play AAA ball with imperialism. Yeah, it's it's a lot of inbred bickering. Uh, to who, who gets to exploit Brazilian people? The hardest, which group of Portuguese people really at this point? Right. Eventually, after wars and strife, the empire of Brazil would stabilize under Pedro II. In history books, he's described as a modern, progressive, and tolerant man, but he is still Portuguese. And therefore a bastard. 
Yeah. And being and being so, he was related to half of Europe as well as most nobility was at the time. I say yeah. that because despite all of his praises, 30% of his empire's entire population lived in one kind of enslavement or another. Jesus. It was a lot. There was a whole lot of slaves in Brazil. That's bad. And I believe Brazil was the last country in this part of the world to outlaw slavery almost in the 1900s. Cool. Yeah. It was like late 1800s. He did uh, institute elections in a parliament, though the emperor picked the prime minister and he was a seemingly, and that prime minister under Pedro II at least was at least allowed to do his job without imperial meddling. Though in order to vote in these elections, you had to meet certain land ownership and income requirements, which Ah. meant out of 10 million people, about 200,000 could vote. How convenient. And also the votes are corrupt and everybody knew it. The empire was described as stable, but the entire system depended on slavery. It was a unique position to be alone in after 1865 and the destruction of the American Confederacy, uh, which meant they had very few friends in the world as the U.S. had come around to realizing that slavery is bad for optics. I'm not going to say that America came around to disagreeing with slavery because I feel like that's actually... Yeah, no, we, we, we didn't. Yeah. I don't think it's fair to say that we did. Slavery, it turns out, is not a good way to create a stable country. And while that seems very obvious, let me walk you through a few things. On top of its countless ethical and moral evils, it creates a built-in population whose only method out of their immediate situation is violent rebellion, which then facilitates the state in building a massive security force to keep them in check, which then makes the non-slave population mad about all these cops and soldiers that they are having to pay for. Then the government gets mad of their own population and their own overpowered security forces built in to keep everybody in line in the first place. Cool. Not to mention you you simply don't have the infrastructure to free people if you don't want the entire country to fall apart. Because, okay, let's make 30% of the population suddenly free overnight. What the fuck are they going to (laughs) do? Kill their former masters with any luck. Now, I'm not saying that is ethically or morally wrong to do what they're probably going to do next. (laughs) I'm just going to say, if you want to hold together a country without some pretty serious institutional change within those borders, you're going to have a bad time, which, of course, circles back around to keeping slavery in line because you don't want to, like, I don't know, be led out of your imperial chambers at gunpoint. (laughs) Right. Okay. Yeah, fair enough. You are nothing if not pragmatic, Joe. Sometimes I have to put myself in like the headspace of like the worst people in history to try to explain why because like it's very easy to say LOL bad, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> Which is admittedly what I used to do. And I still do it. Like this is inarguably a terrible fucking system and indefensible in every way possible. However, I feel like it's very, very important to understand where the worst people in history are coming from so you can mock them more efficiently. Not so you can identify with them. I do not mean to humanize any of these fucking people. Right, They're right, terrible. Right. <laughs> if you're getting that from what I'm saying, you've taken a wrong turn. Go back around. Now, this put Brazil in a very weird place. It was both stable, but very volatile with a government that would lash out at any perceived threat, worried that someone was going to run in and, as the saying goes, kick down the door and the whole rotten structure would come down, which sure. would happen after this war. Pretty swiftly, may I add. <laughs> The last player in this war was Uruguay, the smallest nation of them, and accidentally the most major cause for it. Though, and really, that's through no fault of their own. They were very much caught in the middle of imperial meddling and proxy wars of literally everybody that surrounded them. Hey, guys, happy to be here. Hopefully, there won't be a bloody war for Empo. Oh, no. Guys, isn't it cool to have an independent country? Guys? Oh, God. <laughs> I said, this is a bloody war for empire. This is exactly what I didn't want to happen. Now, at the time, Uruguay was known as Banda Oriental, but I'm going to call it Uruguay to make things easier on myself and everybody else. Thank you, Joe. Uruguay was possibly in the worst position of everyone. It was small and powerless. Both Argentina and Brazil attempted to swallow them whole after the crumbling of the vice royalty. The situation inside the new country was a lot like Argentina, with European-influenced liberals in its capital, Montevideo, uh, which wanted to reform the country to make it more Western, um, things like that, and rural conservatives uh, who really uh, wanted nothing to do with Montevideo, which, sure. And unlike its neighbors, a huge amount of these people on both the rural side 
and the uh, urban side were immigrants. It's very strange. Most of the country's known population were not Uruguayans. <laughs> There's a lot of native populations that, uh, of course, butted against the urban center because that immediately leads to their exploitation, as it always does. Right, right of course. There's at least 50,000 foreigners living within the country, many of whom were the urban side. And like a lot of people in this situation, they want to acquire land because land equates wealth, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. When you acquire this land, it's going to be taken from the rural areas, many of these people natives. So mm -hmm. you could see where the conflict's coming from. Right. And you could certainly see why the rural natives were like, yo, fuck Montevideo. Right. This led to something... That's generally considered a civil war, though it goes through weird ebbs and flows between 1838 and 1851. It's a long fucking time. Damn, dude. It was very, very fluid and hard to keep track of um, with very, very hot periods and very, very low periods. The war eventually sucked in all of its neighbors as well as Britain and France. Oh, boy. Montevideo was besieged on and off for nine years, leading to a stalemate. But the war occurred outside of like the siege and outside of what you'd think of, you know, force on force combat. It was a whole lot of just bloodthirsty crimes uh, to the point that throat slitting became so commonplace that a historian called it, quote, ritual. Oh, uh, that's yeah. love life, man. Yeah. You always say the gruesome stuff for what I'm about to eat dinner, too. That's right, baby. Now, eventually, Argentina was able to bring the two sides to a ceasefire, but off the, uh, the country's desperately poor and ruined, uh, which led them directly to fall into the arms of Brazil, who was waiting in the wings to exploit them. This included five different treaties that effectively made Uruguay a client state of Brazil, with things like Brazilians having land buying rights, having the right to solve all of their territorial disputes, and even the right to command and to control Uruguayan customs taxes. Uh, yeah, Brazil controlled the country. Right. Now, this was joined with a perpetual, unbreakable alliance. Like Uruguay had previously abolished slavery, but because of one of these treaties, promised to extradite any runaway slaves back into Brazil. Now, this gotcha. unfortunately would turn into Brazilian slavers coming into Uruguay and kidnapping uh, people they believed to be slaves, which was just like... Or just did it at random. I racial minorities. Or, racial minorities. Yeah. They were kidnapping racial minorities. Right. And put no, them of course. Yeah. 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 Tell us all the time, Joe. Now, this piece lasted about 10 years until the Civil War broke out again. Uh, Venazio Flores, leader of the Colorado faction, who are generally thought to be the progressives, launched a rebellion against a new president, Bernardo Barrow, who is the leader of the Blanco faction, which is the conservatives. This became known as the Uruguayan War, and it quickly became a massive, confused, and stupid proxy war dragging in all of its neighbors. Now, this is for a few reasons. Flores, the Colorado leader, had a kindred spirit in Argentinian leader Mitter, and the support of the Empire of Brazil, who are both pumping in support to their side of the war, though technically it was supposed to be a secret. Brazil, despite being the de facto ruler of a much smaller Uruguay, had actually gotten kind of sick of Barrow, who was the leader of the Blanco faction. They figured the easiest way to get rid of him would just be to support the Colorados. On top of that, Miter and Flores really fucking hated Solano Lopez. <laughs> ah, fuck that and, guy. And Lopez, who was already very, very paranoid and already nearly fought Brazil a couple of times before, saw this as a united front against him. Uh, the Colorados won. They would take over Uruguay, at which point Argentina, Uruguay, and Brazil would all be united against Paraguay. Now, I do have to say, this is where some people believe that Solano Lopez was right, and this is going to happen. There's actually no evidence about this. Um, it's all based on the paranoid writings of Solano Lopez, who is not at all a, uh, a trustworthy narrator. Unreliable yeah. narrator. Yeah, sure. And this is where the modern telling of the Solano Lopez stories comes in, that this was a proactive. It's like, well, I'm going to fight the war now rather than fight it later, which sure. is weird. I mean, even in the situation where this war is coming later, there's no situation where Paraguay could possibly win. Right. So it doesn't make it any smarter. But that is uh, more of a creation of the Solano Lopez mythos than anything that's based in reality. Got it. For the Blancos, the legal government of Uruguay, they were left on their own and fighting the Colorados, fighting Brazil, and Argentina. They immediately reached out to Lopez for support, and Uruguay asked for an alliance, and uh, Lopez turned it down. He, wouldn't, he didn't want to get that close to him yet. 
at the same time, he wrote to Argentina telling them like, hey, we know what you're doing. Stop supporting Flores. Cut it out. Right. Lopez then sent them because like, this is the idea here. He was worried in his own mind that uh, uh, Lopez is anyway, that Argentina would see him as a bad faith actor. That They were hiding something from Argentina. Right. So in order to prove that because uh, Lopez sees himself as a the smartest man in every room that he's in, which sure dem- demonstrably false, but also like this great diplomat, despite the fact he did not understand us diplomacy. And as an example of that, to prove to Argentina that his goals were were you know good or whatever, he released all of the diplomatic cables between Paraguay and Uruguay. Oh boy! Now. He was clearly trying to position himself as some kind of mediator into this war, showing that he wasn't hiding anything. But now releasing diplomatic cables in such a way is widely known as a dick move. You're not supposed to do this. Yeah, I was going to say. And his plan failed entirely and quickly. I thought I was being a sly mediator. But uh, the only thing that happened was this actually brought the concerns of a possible Lopez entry into this war to the attention of Mitter, who previous this didn't really care about Lopez. Sure. Uh, <laughs> Lopez also pointed out that everybody knew about the supplies and men that Argentina was sending to Flores. This pissed off Argentina anymore. It's like one of those things like, you're not supposed to fucking talk about this publicly. Like, let's do, let's do this at a meeting like adults. <laughs> right, right, right. This is one of Lopez's biggest weakness on top of, uh, you know, all of the other ones. Like I said, he always believed that he was the smartest man in every room that he was in, despite the fact that he was very clearly almost in way over his head in every situation right. that, he's, that he found himself in. He thought that he could play geopolitics like a video game, like in like a Total War game. Like like, <laughs> yeah. He was attempting to play Brazil and Argentina off one another without realizing the dynamics had changed, and they're both very clearly allies. Sure. After being asked multiple times, the Blancos finally sent in a guy named Antonio Carreras to speak with Lopez, who played Lopez like a fiddle. Previous to this, the Blancos are trying to do things in a way that you consider the geopolitical norm, pleading their case, why it's a good thing uh, that Lopez or more specifically Paraguay should help Uruguay in the situation they found themselves in. Carreras had a different idea. He understood the kind of douchebag that Lopez was, and instead of pleading their government's case, he buttered him up. He just flattered him, fawning over him, calling him like a genius, like whatever you say is clearly the best thing. They're like, the only person that could save our government is you. Oh, boy. Of course, this worked immediately. Jeez, <laughs> oh, hate to see it. Immediately afterwards, he began pumping the Blanco government full of every supply he could his hands on, as well as a letter to the other two governments, uh, Argentina and Brazil, saying that any occupation of Uruguayan land would constitute a Cassius Belli or cause of war against Paraguay because of reasons. Sure. Then Brazil got directly involved, threatening the Blanco oh, government no. with reprisal attacks in Montevideo via the fleet that they had that nobody else did. Should they not take actions to fix the complaints of Brazilian nationals living within Uruguay? Now, these complaints, mind you, were Uruguayan government authorities not allowing Brazilian farmers who had propped up farms in parts of Uruguay to use Mm -hmm. slaves in Uruguay. A hill worth dying on. Oh, boy, do they die for it. Oh, of course they do. Paraguay wrote another letter pointing out that doing that would be a dick move and an act of war, that being bombing Montevideo. Brazil countered by insisting that bombing the capital of another country was not, in fact, an act of war because nobody in this fucking war is not stupid. Now, Vienna de Lima, who is the Brazilian minister of Paraguay, considered the ministers of Paraguay like an ambassador, blew Lopez off, but he didn't take time to relay Lopez's complaints to the Brazilian government. Lopez, who thought of himself as one of the most important men to ever walk the earth, got furious that he was told to fuck off by a mere ambassador. He wanted a face-to-face meeting with the prime minister, which he was not going to get. Also, Pedro II really fucking hated Lopez personally as well. Understandable, I think. <laughs> he's, very, he's very hateable. Meanwhile, while all this is going, it was, this is being seen as a pretty big problem in Uruguay. They were pissed that Lopez had published their correspondence, which then caused Barrow to resign and a guy named Anastasio Aguirre to become president. 
who also happened to hate Lopez. Right. Like everybody hates Lopez. Then as if seeing like how, how many governments you could piss off all at once, Lopez oh, published their correspondence again. This dude loves doing it. <laughs> this time in the official Paraguayan government newspaper, circulating it all around the country to be, to be like trying to tell his people like, look, I'm the fucking good guy. Huh? Argentina thought this was the funniest thing they've ever seen, and they openly mocked Lopez in their own newspapers, which was joined in by Brazil. <laughs> oh, funny. It turned into a regional roast battle. Like, he was like, why are you laughing at me? I'm right. After this geopolitical roast session, Lopez began to think that both Brazil and Argentina were against him, that this war was coming whether he liked it or not. At the time, the two governments did meet and decide to work together if Lopez decided to openly get involved in Uruguay. That was it. Like, if this idiot actually tries to get militarily involved, we'll, we'll, we'll kick him down. But they didn't mm-hmm. have any overarching plans okay. to take over Paraguay at all. By January of 1864, a general mobilization decree had been issued across Paraguay. And because of their much better centralization of government from their long string of paranoid psycho dictators, they actually managed to, at this point, amass an army larger than either Brazil or Argentina combined. For reasons we'll talk about more in part two. But it is clear that during the meeting between Argentina and Brazil, general latitude was he's not going to do it. Lopez is smarter than this. You see? It turns out he was not, in fact, yeah. smarter than that. Yeah. And that, folks, is what we'll pick up. Part two. Part two. Liam, how you feeling so far about uh, this war? This guy's a fucking idiot. <laughs> like, and I say that as a guy who's not too bright. Everyone here appears to be a fucking idiot. I will say my opinion of everybody involved in this war will make it worse later on. Like, normally when you're researching a war uh, or a campaign or a battle, there's one guy in, on one side that's like, well, he's not a complete dumbass. Right. I don't think that guy shows up in this story until part four. Oh, dear. Yeah, it's, it's not good. Um, anyway, Liam, plug your shows. Uh, listen to 10,000 Losses. It's a Philly sports podcast that Joe has been on. Listen to, well, there's your problem. An engineering disasters podcast with slides that Joe is going to be on again. Yeah. And uh, see it or screw it whenever it comes out. Yay, Joe. I'm stealing it. Yay. Uh, I guess that would make more sense to be go, Joe. But I feel like that would get me a lawsuit from GI Joe's. Probably. Anyway, everybody, thank you so much for listening to the show. If you think what we do here is worth a buck, donate to the show via Patreon. Get bonus stuff. Or don't. Uh, it's your money. I can't tell you what to do. But reviewing us on your podcasting platform of choice is free. Those are very appreciated. And until next time, um, please check out our sources. Please check out our bibliography. And also don't uh, get drunk and yell at the moon. That seems fun. That's harmless. Uh, That does seem fun.